One of the shocking things about the Gospels is how short they are. The uh, Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs is uh, 700 pages. Uh, William Manchester's biography of, uh, of Douglas MacArthur is 800 pages. Dostoevsky has a, uh, our, a biography by uh, Frank James. It's 2,500 pages. And the Gospel of John is about 30 pages. <laughs> so uh, Mark is shorter than that, and obviously it depends upon whether you have a study Bible or not. Sometimes the notes make it a little bit longer. I'm, I am now learning that sometimes it depends upon how big the font is. So you get the large print, it's a little bit longer. But none of these are very long. So immediately we understand that everything that's in them is important. Like <laughs> there's not much there. The most significant person who ever lived has these very brief accounts of his life. So what do they focus on? They focus on the last week of his life. The Gospel of John, we're moving through the second half. The second half of the Gospel of John is entirely devoted to the last week of of Christ's life. It is where all kinds of storylines come together. It is where uh, the reason we focus on Jesus becomes so profound. Most people who are famous are not famous for their death, but you could argue that it is about Christ's crucifixion and then, of course, his resurrection that all the ink is spilled. So, uh, last week, we were in uh, the first part of John 13, and there we saw Christ's radical uh, understanding of leadership. He, he sort of threw convention, uh, he threw protocol to the wind, and he washes the disciples' feet. He does for them what they will not do for each other. And he says, you have power, this is what you do with your power. <laughs> you serve others. You take what you have and you do for others, even what they will not do for themselves. And so we get this radical lesson on leadership. And then in the second half of John 13, there are two themes. There's one about the betrayal of Jesus, and then there's one about love. We're going to focus on the second one on love. But let me say just a little bit about what happens between verse uh, 18 and verse 30. This is where the, the, the disciples have gathered together. Uh, they're having a meal, and Jesus uh, says, look, I have been telling you this. I'm going to tell you again. I'm about to die. And then he goes one step further, and he says, I'm about to die because one of you is going to betray me. So this, of course, obviously uh, unsettles the room, and there's, there's all these little side conversations and a little murmur, and people are saying, not me, not me. And and it, it, it appears as though not everybody can hear everything that's going on, but Jesus and Judas have a little conversation, and John is close to Jesus, and he overhears this conversation, and later tells us that Jesus says to Judas, in essence, I know that it's you. <laughs> Judas, I want you to know that I know that you are about to betray me. And then Jesus says to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly. And Judas gets up and he leaves. And, and the, it, it seems that the other uh, apostles do not understand why Judas is leaving, what he is going to do. But Jesus knows. He knows, okay, you know, the clock is ticking. I don't have a whole lot of time. And it's at that point that we pick up then uh, in John chapter 13, beginning here with verse uh, 30. 
When he was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man, again, this is the big title, this is the big claim, Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7, now the Son of Man, the one to whom all power, authority, glory, rights, all, all uh, authority over everything, everywhere, forever is going to be given, the Son of Man. This is Jesus' claim about himself. When he was gone, this is Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So let me read this again with a slightly different emphasis. Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. So obviously a whole lot of glory is happening here. The Greek word is doxa, from which we get the word doxology. And uh, it is... uh, it's, it's a significant word. It's actually a, a sort of a hard word to, to fully, op, ap, fully apprehend. If you read systematic theologies, there's always chapters, you know, there's chapters on Jesus and there's chapters on love and there's chapters on justice. And you, you know that those are going to be relatively easy chapters to understand. You get to the chapter on glory, <laughs> it's a little bit harder to comprehend. So, The glory, sort of a basic definition of God's glory, is that it is is the beauty of who he is. It is the the outward expression of the inward glory and beauty and power and majesty and all the attributes put together. It's what sort of spills out of God. And we see this... uh, it's, this is, it, it's not just a New Testament concept. The glory of God is a big Old Testament concept. I've been reading through Exodus in my devotional times lately, and, and in Exodus chapter 33, Moses makes this rather cheeky request of God. Uh, he says, show me your glory. And God says uh, to Moses, well, uh, that's not going to happen. You could not see my glory and survive. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to hide you in the crevice of the rock, and I'm going to cover it up, and then I'm going to move past, and then I'm going to allow you, you're not going to see my face, you're not going to see my glory, but you can see, you can gaze on my goodness, sort of limiting what Moses can, can see, and you can gaze upon my goodness. So this is an, this is an ongoing uh, idea that God's God has beauty beyond bearing, beauty beyond comprehension. And, and it's not something that uh, we understand particularly well. So uh, a few years ago, uh, I heard Tim Keller talking about this. And he, so the, the, the Crown, the Netflix series on the British um, monarchy, the British royal family was, was just out, and he said, Americans don't really understand glory because we don't have a royal family, for which right now I would say, and we're very glad uh, that that's the case. But he said that you get a little bit of an understanding of glory if you watch the scene in which Elizabeth uh, is coronated. 
and the, there's all this regal majesty and there's all this ceremony to try and, and, to try and display the power and the wonder uh, and, and the gravitas of the, of the British monarchy. And uh, again, we, we don't necessarily uh, understand that. But here's something to note. <laughs> like, if that's glory, that is not at all what is about to happen for Jesus. So Jesus says, I am about to be glorified, and he is clearly talking, at least in part, about going to the cross and dying. Right? He, is, he is going to suffer this unthinkable, grotesque, uh, un, uncomprehensible, cruel, public death Right? This, isn't, this isn't Socrates drinking hemlock. This isn't Louis XVI going to the guillotine. This is a slow, public, horrific uh, exercise by Rome to try and say, this is what we will do to you, and it's so bad, and it's so painful, and it's so humiliating that nobody wants to step out of line. That is what is about to happen to Jesus, and... and the description that we get here, Jesus saying, I'm about to be glorified. And this does not seem to make a whole lot of sense. Now, I don't want to say a lot about glory here because we're going to get a lot more about glory when we get to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. There's a lot there also about, uh, about Jesus being glorified. But I, I simply want to note that this, that this uh, horrific sequence of events that Jesus is going to go through. He's beaten. Isaiah 53 suggests that he's, he's, he's beaten before his crucifixion so significantly that they hardly even recognize him. He's nailed to a tree, which just seems to be, uh, as, I mean, there's no greater loss of freedom than to sort of have your arms pried apart and nailed to a board. Uh, Jesus is going to undergo all of this and, and bear the wrath of God and and it is being talked about here as if it is an act of the glorification of Christ. So how do we put these things together? How would we suggest that this arguably most important moment in history, but this horrific sequence of, of events that is happening to Jesus as he's crucified, why would they use the word glory here? Well, there is, a, uh, there is an argument, and I, 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 I've been attracted to it for a number of years, and it seems to be gaining prominence. It's called the greater glory theory, and it is, to some extent, an answer to the problem of evil, like why does God allow these things to happen? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there cancer? Why is there heartache? Why is there divorce? Why is there war? Why, is there, why, why are all these things going wrong? God... If you're good and you're loving and you're powerful, why don't you stop this stuff? Right? So that's the classic problem of evil. And there's all, I mean, to say that there's tens of thousands of, of uh, pages that have been written about this is to dramatically underestimate how many pages have been written. But, but what has always seemed to make some sense, and it certainly seems to make sense out of this particular passage, is that in light of eternity... In light of the upside that comes with a, with a greater understanding of who God is, the bad has to happen. 
We could not understand God's character. We could not understand the depth of his goodness. We could not understand the, the, the extent of his grace. We could not understand his love for us unless we saw what he did for us. And this, there's some things that you just can't be told about. You sort of have to see demonstrated. And there's a sense in which that is what's happening. Jesus is being glorified on the cross. And we know that he doesn't stay on the cross, right? Philippians 2 will say, the, the second half of Philippians 2, it's that big Christological passage that says, Jesus, God in heaven, steps down, becomes one of us, descends lower and lower, not just one of us, but a slave, not just a slave, but a slave that goes to his death. Not just death, but death on the cross. So we've got this radical descent of Jesus. And then it says, therefore, because of what he did, because of the crucifixion, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that those who are on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So there, there's some mystery here. And again, I'm not going to spend any more time on it, but there's, this, there's something powerful, mysterious, layered, uh, and ultimately glorious about uh, Christ's crucifixion. Verse 33. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the, the immediate question to ask here is, uh, how is this new? Like, have we not been hearing that we're supposed to love one another? Like, that's, that doesn't seem like that is a new idea. It almost feels like if, if a, you know, there's a second left in the basketball game and you're down by to, you're down by one point, and uh, the coach, you know, calls a timeout and gets everybody together, and he says, okay, I got, a, I got an idea, I got a new plan. Here's the, here's the plan. Score a basket, and we'll win. And you sort of look around and go, uh, that's not exactly what we were looking for here. Like, a new command I give you, love one another. What is new about that? By the way, when Austin, our uh, our, our oldest son was in high school. He ran cross-country and track. And, and uh, you, I used to say to him, I go, you know, you would win more if you ran faster. Like, it's just an idea. I don't know what your coach is telling you, but if you just ran faster, you would win. He didn't, he didn't think it was as funny as you were. I thought it was funny. And so what is new about this new commandment? Well, um, what is new is that Jesus is suggesting that he is setting a new standard and that his example becomes the new template here. And I, I want to take you back. We've talked about this before, and it's sort of relatively well-known. There's these different words in Greek for, for love. But, but what you may not have uh, understood as well, I've certainly not emphasized it, is that there's a sense in which you can sort of stack them on top of each other. So here at the bottom you have uh, eros. It's erotic love. 
It's, but erotic love in Greek is not exclusively sexual love. It is, I love you because you meet my needs. I love you because you give me something. And then above that, you have phileo. This is the, you know, the phileo is brotherly love. Philadelphia is a city of brotherly love. This is, this is the love that you have with those with whom you affiliate. Phileo, affiliate, you see that. It's, it, this, this, these are your people. This is your tribe. This is, the, this is your family. And so we learn this love sort of secondly. There's a sense in which a child has the Eros kind of love for uh, their, their mom who is feeding them. They're giving, the mom is giving them what they need. And then you move up and you, you now have a love for those whom you're around, who you're affiliating with, brothers and sisters, the, you know, your friends that you're playing with. And then you go up one level above that and you have this different Greek word, sterge, and this, this refers more to uh, compassion. It's, it's, uh, it, it can sometimes be pity, but, but, but it's, it's the kind of, of empathy, uh, sympathy that you might feel to somebody who is having a difficult time. And, in, and this starts to emerge, hopefully, in middle school and high school, where you look around and you say, looks like that person is having a rough time. I feel sorry for them. I want to help them. My heart goes out to them. So that's a, that's a little bit more altruistic kind of love than you have beneath it. And so these are the forms of love that the Greeks are, are most familiar with. These are the words that they have. And, uh, and when, again, when the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, is being translated into Greek during the, uh, the intertestamental period after Alexander the Great has conquered the world, so in the, in the centuries before Christ shows up, the world uh, turns Greek, it's Hellenized, and so the Bible has to be translated, the Hebrew scriptures have to be translated into Greek, and those translators said, we don't have the words we need. None of these words, eros, phileo, or sturgeon, give us the kind of love we see from God. It's not, they're not, it's not strong enough, it's not, it's not rich enough, it's not, it's just not what we're looking for. And that's where this word agape comes from. And so what we get here uh, with Jesus saying this is, look, I'm, I'm going to a different level. A new command I give you, love one another as I am loving you. Love one another as I am setting the example. It's not eros, it's not phileo, it's not sergei, it's, it's agape. And, and here, we have just seen Jesus wash the feet of everybody, including the person he knows is going to betray him. It is this incredibly self-sacrificial love that he is calling us to. Verse 36 Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Now, you can almost imagine Jesus rolling his eyes and saying, seriously, Peter? Like we're talking about love and you're going back to where am I going? Like, did you miss the whole point? Could you not once sort of get what's going on? I, now, look, uh, it actually strikes me as a very uh, sort of prophetic kind of answer that Peter gives, because I, I will tell you as a pastor, I get a hundred times more questions 
about when Jesus is gonna return than I ever get about how do I love this person? What does it look like for me to serve this person? <laughs> so Peter's just the first to ask the question. Uh, Jesus replied, and Jesus answers. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow, but you will follow later. And Jesus will, of course, go on to say, going ahead, I'm preparing a place for you. I'll come back, I'll get you, right? Uh, don't, don't worry about it. Peter then asks, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And we all know how that's going to end. Uh, he will deny Christ three times in the next uh, 24 hours. Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, uh, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, in Peter's defense here, just uh, let me switch, switch approaches here. In Peter's defense, um, he is going to deny Christ three times, but all the others, have they're not even hanging out, right? They've fled even further away than he has. And so you, you have uh, that on his behalf. And uh, he, will, uh, he will eventually die for Jesus, right? He will, he will mature. He will circle back. Uh, Ten of the twelve apostles die for Christ. They die as martyrs. Uh, the, the two exceptions, uh, Judas, who ends his own life, and, uh, and John, who supposedly, tradition would say, they tried to put him to death, but he didn't die, and so then they banished him to that island in Patmos for a while. So, look, there's a lot going on here. Uh, I, I thought about focusing on repentance because uh, we, we get in the Bible these two case studies that contrast people who have these public failures and how they respond. So in the Old Testament, we have both Saul and David, who are, who are guilty of rather public, high-profile uh, sin. Get caught. Saul, it's, it's disobedience, and it's, it's elevating himself beyond God. It's, it's disobeying God. And then David, of course, it's adultery, and, and then murder. And in the New Testament, we have... Uh, we have Judas, who betrays Christ, and we have Peter, who's going to deny Christ three times. And we have both of these things set up, and in both cases, we have one person who repents and the other who ends their life. So David will repent. We have Psalm 51. David sort of owns his sin. He confesses. Very publicly, he, he uh, acknowledges his sin, and he is restored. Saul will, we're told, end up falling on his own sword. And then Judas will, uh, betrays Christ, he will feel clearly, he feels guilt and shame and remorse and regret, and he goes out and ends his life. He hangs himself. Peter denies Christ three times. And experiences regret and shame and remorse. But he also is humble and he returns to Jesus and he receives Jesus' forgiveness and moves on. So there's, there's, it's clear there is a lot going on here as it relates to the importance of confession and repentance. Uh, there's a sense in which the question is not, if I mess up, should I confess? The question is, when I continue to mess up, am I going to have a soft heart of humility 
and, and own this and confess my sin as I move forward. So I thought about going there, but I decided instead to drill down on this idea that the marks of a Christian will be love. By this, they will know that you are my disciples, by your love. Back in the uh, 70s, uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called The Marks of a Christian. By the way, a relatively new uh, article that came out uh, on deconstruction, which is sort of in vogue right now. Deconstruction is sort of uh, de dismantling your faith. You can de deconstruct a lot of things, but there's a lot of talk about people who are sort of deconstructing their faith. And uh, I was reading one in which Francis Schaeffer was the uh, person that was being talked about. So Schaeffer was a theologian, uh, philosopher, and he went uh, to Europe uh, as a relatively young man as a missionary. And uh, he had grown up in a pretty sort of uh, angry, uh, fundamentalist home. And when he gets to Europe, working as a missionary, he and Edith, uh, his wife, also wrote a number of books. When they get to Europe, uh, Schaefer has an encounter with Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's a prominent British preacher. And, uh, and Jones crit critiques the group that Schaefer is working with. And he says, I don't see a lot of love. Like, <laughs> I don't see a lot of love with you guys. And this really decimates Schaefer. And he thinks about it and he goes, yeah, I don't see a lot of love either. Like, I don't see a lot of love in the way people are in this group are treating each other. And it leads him on a path in which he eventually decides he has to not only step out of being a missionary, he has to question his faith entirely. And he announces this to people and to his wife, and, it's, and Edith writes about this and says it was a traumatic time for her, where for uh, a series of months, Schaefer is rethinking everything. Like, do I really believe this is true? Because if it's true, then I would expect to see love. I would expect to be characterized by love, not by the kind of small-minded anger that I see in this group. And so uh, it takes him a while to rebuild his faith. When he comes back, of course, you might know that he ends up uh, starting the Labrie Study Centers, uh, starts these in Switzerland, and they were places where people who had sort of lost their way, uh, didn't know what they believed, were sort of philosophical and, and spiritual nomads, would show up at the Labrie, and Schaefer, as an apologist, would sort of would initially critique their new worldview and show them how that clearly doesn't work and then would help them rebuild their faith. And then he goes on to write a number of books about what was going to happen in the West uh, in the future, which are out there and much of which is playing out as he suggested. In addition to writing those, he also wrote a book called The Marks of a Christian and it was based on John 13 and John 17. Again, we'll be getting to this high priestly prayer down the line. But uh, there is, again, this, this suggestion that if Christianity is true and if, if people are following Jesus, they will be noted for their love. Right? This is how people will know you. 
because of your love for one another. So it leads to leads us to, to have to have to ask the question: Is love the word people would use to describe me, or would it be something else? Would it be fear? Would it be anger? Would it be pride? Would it be what? Jesus says, by this they will know that you are with me. Your love. And my example is the new standard (laughs) that I am giving to you. Here's the new command. Raise your game. This is, I mean, this is, you know, obviously very hard stuff to hear. So I'm going to end with a story um, that's recorded in a 4th century uh, account by Eusebius. So mid-4th century, Eusebius wrote one of the earliest histories of of Christianity. And uh, he writes about a story about John who wrote the Gospel of John. Now, this is coming, you know, 250 years after John lived. We don't know. Uh, we don't know whether it's true. There's a lot that argues that uh, the sort of the oral transmission and other things is, is much more reliable than we might imagine. But the story is told about uh, John being released from the island of Patmos, and he comes back, uh, and he's actually the bishop of, a, of an area in Asia Minor, and he is um, caring for the churches and caring for people. And there's a young man that he leads to faith in Christ, and he is discipling this young man. When it becomes time for him to go, John needs to travel somewhere. And so he takes this young man, and he puts him under the care of this pastor. And then he's gone. And, of course, he's gone for for some time. And uh, when, when he comes back... The, the, he goes to the pastor, he says, you know, where's this young man? And the pastor says, he's, he's dead. And, the, and John goes, he's dead, how did he die? He goes, he's dead to God. He goes, well, what do you mean? And he says, well, he said, he, while you were gone, he, he fell under the influence of, of these bad men, and uh, he has followed them, and they're, they're thieves, and they're thugs, and he's living with them up in the mountains. And so John, uh, who's an old man at this point, uh, travels to the mountains and, and intentionally allows himself to be taken by these thieves. And then he says, I want to go, and I want to go see your leader. And so he's taken to the leader of this group of thieves, and he says, I, I'm back after this young man. And uh, the young man is there and uh, sees John and then looks away, and John goes after him, and he says, Why, my son... Dost thou flee from me, thine own father, unarmed and aged? Pity me, my son. Fear not, thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will willingly endure the death as the Lord suffered death for us. For thee will I give up my life. Stand, believe, Christ hath sent me. And and the report is the young man repents and comes back with John. Now, Let me say, uh, to put this all in context, there's a lot of good to celebrate. Being asked, am I loving, (laughs) is a hard question. Because we all know examples where that's not the word someone's going to use to describe us. Uh, 
there are not only the high-profile examples of where the church has gotten this right. You know, thinking of Dylan Roof, the neo-Nazi who goes into this church in Charleston uh, 15 years ago. He goes into a black church and, and during a prayer meeting. After they've welcomed him into this setting, he takes out a gun and, and kills nine of them. And they then extend love and forgiveness uh, to him. Or that same thing happened a few years earlier in Lancaster with the Amish where this guy, you know, sort of overtakes a classroom and ends up uh, killing a number of the young Amish women. And the Amish community uh, reaches out with love and care for the family of that, of the murderer who was killed in the, in the follow-up. There's examples, high-profile examples, and then there's examples locally, right? I, I, was in, I went to Dallas for 24 hours this week to look at a Look at a, a, a center that's a friend who's a pastor of church, um, not unlike Christ Church, and they've started a new thing over the last eight years, and it's, it's grown in, in uh, the east part of Plano, and it's, it's become a sort of a center where all kinds of thousand people in the church volunteer in different capacities in terms of helping those. And, and we, can, we can point to, you know, Renew and the Justice Center and Hogs Ministry and the Car Ministry and St. James. I mean, there's all kinds, of, all kinds of ways you are involved in trying to love and serve. But let's not miss. I mean, I don't, think, I don't think I can let us off the hook here, right? Jesus says, I am the new example for you. I am setting a new bar, a new command. Love one another. This is, this is my calling card. This is how they'll know you're with me. Love one another as I am loving you. It is a remarkably ambitious and high and convicting call that Jesus gives to us. Let's pray. Lord God, we, uh, we thank you for your love on display. We don't pretend to understand um, the mysteries of your plan, don't know uh, exactly how we're to understand how you glorified your son uh, on the cross, but we thank you for sending your son uh, to die in our place. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for accepting that assignment. And we, uh, we Look forward to seeing you glorified uh, as Daniel is written, as we see discussed in the chapters in Revelation, when, when the Lamb of God is, is coronated and celebrated. We long for that day when the world is made right, when, when evil is ceased, when there is no sickness. Uh, we, are, we are looking forward to that day. And I pray that uh, we will be known for our love. I pray that you will help us to see ourselves more clearly. I pray that you would help us to be uh, more like you in this. May we, uh, as, John, uh, as John does in this, um, in this report by Eusebius, may we be so full of, of your love and the example and the goodness, and may we rest in the peace uh, that comes by knowing that you have paid our moral debt and that we are secure. May we be the kinds of people who are saying to others just what, what John says to this young man, look, if I gotta die in your place, that's, that's, what I, that's where I'm headed. I want to do for you what has been done for me. Help us to, to move, to become more like you, to be characterized by love, we pray in Christ's name, amen.